This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, October 13th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Uh, hello, hello, Ben. Jacob, how's it going? Uh, I, I guess we're, we'll, let's just dive right into it and talk a little bit about what we've been doing recently. Uh, I got a record player for the first time in my life. Um, I, I just set it up right before starting my shift to, uh, today, and it works, and I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm going to become like a vinyl guy, I guess. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, never... I, I tried to become a vinyl guy at one point, and I realized that I collect so many books and movies and comics and board games that something had to give, and I had, I had to stop at being a vinyl guy. I, w- <laughs> I wish you the best of luck, though. I like the um, the idea of what it means to have a record player. Maybe maybe more than having one. You know, like the idea of uh, my wife and I have been building this library upstairs in our house for going on a year plus probably and we're, you know, I don't know, a little bit more than halfway done I would guess. But I love the idea of just like sitting in a in a library space surrounded by stacks of books and like, you know, actually putting a uh, an album on instead of, you know, just playing something through my phone speakers or whatever. So that's, a, you know, the aesthetic and sort of the vibe is a big uh, part of the reason I got it. But anyway, if anybody has any, uh, you know, favorite albums, favorite vinyls, any good places, you know, to, to grab stuff online or place that has good deals or anything like that, hit me up on Twitter at Ben Paris and let me know. Cause I'm, Th- there's I'm gonna... this band called the Beatles. <laughs> Oh, man, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole again. <laughs> um, okay, Jacob, uh, what have you been doing recently? Uh, I went to a film festival and I got COVID. Um, I got very cocky because I made it through um, South by Southwest and uh, Comic-Con COVID-free. And I thought, man, the much smaller Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas, which I attend every year, if I get through those, okay, then surely I'll be safe there. And the answer was no, I was not. Uh, COVID was very bad for me. It was not just oh, some people. I know some people like oh, I just felt like I had a cold. I did not feel like I had a cold. I I genuinely felt like I was dying, and I was in really bad shape. And even had um, a medical team come to my house to do an infusion treatment in my living room, which was surreal. They were like all in their their ET suits, you know. They're I didn't even know this, Jacob, because I was out of town and I I have not been like, you know, I I wasn't uh, checking in on our Slack or anything. So I didn't even realize the extent to it. I I knew that you were in bad shape. I didn't realize that like a a med team came to your house. That's insane. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's not like um, 
a lot of people can have this done. So it's even people who were in less rough shape to me could have had it done. So it's not like I was like a, a super unique case, but it was a very weird, very scary couple of days. And I'm still feeling the effects. I have a hard time uh, tasting certain foods. I have my hearing is greatly reduced right now. And everything's just a lot harder. I get tired a lot faster. So yeah. hopefully it will go get over soon. But if I start sounding groggy or coffee on this <laughs> podcast, that's why. Okay. Well, best of, of luck and uh, a speedy recovery, man. I'm, I'm really hoping that uh, things get close to back to normal for you very soon. Um, okay. What have you been reading recently? I continue my, my Scott Iman kick. I've talked about him a few times as podcast. I read his Cary Grant and John Wayne biographies, and they were spectacular. So I read one of his more recent books uh, called 20th Century Fox, which is literally about the history of 20th Century Fox, the film studio uh, from its inception all the way up until it was when it was purchased uh, by Disney. It's a good book. It's much shorter than his previous books. This is only about 250 pages, whereas other books are, you know, the size of bricks. And I think it's maybe a little light on detail. It's very much trying to be a, you know, a brisk overview of the company, not necessarily the personalities or the uh, day-to-day operations of it, even though some people loom larger than others. And I found it really enjoyable. I liked it. And, but you can tell that Scott Iman's heart is in like the golden age of Hollywood. He's far more interested in 20th Century Fox from the 30s to the 60s than he is, you know, beyond that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he kind of feels like he kind of rushes through the past, the last few decades. But if you're, you know, a fan of the film industry and want some good golden age stories of studio executives run amok, uh, 20th Century Fox with Scott Iman is very entertaining. Excellent. And then you've been reading something else too, right? Yeah, I'm almost done with Killer Instinct by uh, by uh, Jane Hampshire. Uh, ben, you know how in our industry, as film journalists, we will you know, we'll encounter filmmakers or people who or, or, or like people, film crew, and like we'll be at a bar or a restaurant and they'll say, "Hey, I got a story for you," but you can't tell anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they'd you tell you an amazing story about like a disastrous shoot or bad behavior from from an actor or like crazy demands of a director. And you realize you can't tell anybody because that person told you in confidence. You you know, what if the producer of Natural Born Killers in 1997 uh, wrote an entire memoir about the making of that movie where she tells all those stories, names names, and is just completely like out of out of fucks to give as she burns (laughs) all her bridges and falls backwards, middle fingers extended. That's the reading. And her understanding was not her intention. Her understanding, she wrote this book to try to make herself, to bolster herself, to make it look like, hey, this controversial Oliver Stone movie that everybody was talking about in the 90s that had a script by Quentin Tarantino, or originally a story by Quentin Tarantino, um, I played a big part in it. Here's why I was so cool on this set. And I believe her. I read I read the book, and I genuinely think that she's telling the truth about, about the important role she played and about how it was, it was a wild shoot with lots of bad behavior and how Quentin Tarantino was a total jerk to her and her producing partners and how Oliver Stone was a total maniac. I believe it all. But also, if you look at her IMDb um, credits, her her production, her producing career stopped almost immediately after this book came out. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those cases where you read it and go, you sound like a really good producer who proceeded to burn all of her bridges as loudly and publicly as possible. But that doesn't mean the book isn't entertaining. Killer Instinct is really, really entertaining. It is just the juiciest hottest most rancid gossip it will definitely really i will never watch an oliver stone movie the same way again hmm. <laughs> that's <Wow. for> sure. <laughs> but also it's also it's, it's dated in interesting ways because since her and her producer partner clashed with quentin tarantino very early and like very loudly she says like in written book this is, this is 1997 before jackie brown came out this is back when quentin tarantino had just written a few movies he had reservoir dogs and pulp fiction she writes 
full of confidence that Quentin Tarantino is a one-trick pony who wasn't going to last. Um, <laughs> so it's very, very funny that she was incorrect about that. Uh, but also, it's very much like at the time, people didn't know. Like there was no Kill Bill, there was no Jackie Brown. People did not know, you know, that. So it's a very interesting time capsule. It's a very much a portrait of what it was like to be a producer in Hollywood in the '90s, uh, and just incredibly entertaining. And she, she's still working as a journalist and a writer um, outside of film industry. But it's, this book is the kind of thing you read it and go, like, man, she sounds amazing. But also, I would not trust her because. If she says this about Oliver Stone, what would you say about me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah, so it, it's not just Oliver Stone. Like literally, if you are a named member of the crew, from the cinematographer to the editor to the music supervisor, she has an opinion on you, and you're named in this book. It is deranged, Ben. Okay, man, that sounds uh, ultra entertaining, and it's called Killer Instinct by Jane Hampshire. If you want to check yeah. that out. Um, okay, Jacob, let's get into what we've been watching. It seems like you've been watching a ton of stuff recently. Yeah, I'll, I have a lot on this list. I'll try to run through it um, as fast as possible, at least for the ones that don't deserve to be talked about for very long. But a show, okay, Ben, you've been in Italy for five weeks. So you yes. came back. And I think the first thing I told you when you came back was, hey, Ben, TV's real good right now. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll start with the the unexpected Dark Horse, her favorite show of the year for me, uh, rivaling um, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And that is Andor, the new Star Wars show. Ben, are you as surprised to hear from my voice that I, Jacob Hall, love a Disney Plus Star Wars show as much as this? I am, frankly. And I've I've seen, uh, yeah, I've not seen any of this show yet, but I've seen your reaction to it. And I'm like, son of a bitch, am I going to have to watch a, another Star Wars show? And I feel like I'm probably going to end up liking this one. Right. But uh, tell me why you love it. Uh, ben, uh, let's put it I do not like Mandalorian. I've tried. It is not for me. I've tried other Star Wars shows. I've tried Clone Wars. It's just not for me. And it's not like me being like a bitter, jaded jerk. Like my, my sister, who does not like Star Wars. She doesn't like the movies. She loves Mandalorian. She loves Clone Wars. And her daughter loves Clone Wars. And her daughter loves Mandalorian. And I started realizing, all right, maybe Star Wars on Disney Plus is not for me. This is this is for the new generation. It's for a different type of people. And I'm okay with that. I'm going to quietly retire from Star Wars, let other people enjoy it, and go about my business. But Andor, Ben, made by uh, Tony Gilroy, a filmmaker who made Michael Clayton. He uh, was behind the reshoots in Rogue One. He wrote most of the Bourne movies. Uh, he's actively talked about how he's not a Star Wars fan. He has no love for the larger franchise, no nostalgia for it. And I think that's the key here, which is that Andor is not just another like nostalgic throwback. There's, there, are, there are no Easter eggs. There are no winks. There, it's not Star Wars about Star Wars. Uh, it is... A Star Wars show about what it would mean to actually be in a rebellion and how that would mean, you know, people who are low down without any options, uh, people who are crooks, people who are political idealists, all need to find ways to interact and work together. I mean, the first episode of Andor is light on action, but it's full of casting Andor, character played by Diego Luna from Rogue One. His character is just, <laughs> he owes money to too many people. His mom's worried about him. He lives in a bad side town. He's desperate. He's sad. He's angry. And he's bitter. And that makes him perfect recruiting for a uh, rebel agent to play by Stellan Skarsgård, who's incredible. Play my, one of my favorite new Star Wars characters of all time. This very buttoned down, uh, very professional, very distressed rebel agent played by the great Stellan Skarsgård, who realizes this kind of untapped, angry criminal element is what the rebellion needs. And... Many years ago on this podcast, someone asked me, what would be my ideal Star Wars show? And I said, oh, it would be uh, Star Wars in the, in the style of Army of Shadows, the uh, 
classic French thriller uh, made by Jean-Pierre Melville, which was about the French resistance. And he was a, and Melville himself was in the French resistance and was an agent there. And he made the movie about how it actually felt to be a spy in occupied Paris, like looking over your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And on this podcast, I think, uh, I think it's Peter Sreda said, Jacob, they'll never make that. Ben, they made it. They made it with Andor. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, frankly, Jacob, you had me with like no Easter eggs, no winking, because that kind of tone is the thing that really has turned me off a lot to <laughs> not just Star Wars, but a lot of like modern pop culture in general. Um, so the fact that this seems to be like, I mean, going on the other end of the spectrum and being like, oh man, it's a show that takes things seriously. That makes it sound so joyless. And I don't know if Andor is a joyless show or not, but like at that, and I want to make it clear, like that's not uh, a requirement, a requisite for me to like something is for it to be taken seriously, but just th- simply the fact that it doesn't uh, go out of its way to wink at itself or, or you know, nudge the audience and be like, hey, remember this from 10 other things uh, is, is really a big selling point for me. Yeah, I like how it's structured too because uh, each it's it, Andor is going to be two seasons of twelve episodes, and each it's it's it, it, it walks a fine line where it's not like the Netflix model of hey it's one long movie uh, it's not that at all but it's also not purely episodic every each three episodes tell one story so like mm-hmm. you, you get a mix of serialization but also standalone as you kind of wait for week to week to you know see what happens next but also each one feels satisfying it's just really really smart and how it's structured that way but also like i haven't rem- star wars has never felt this dangerous it's never felt this political star wars has always been political that's things it always has been george lucas made star wars after the vietnam war and it made it very clear that he had politics in it but this is the this is a star wars project that actively acknowledges that the rebellion is a fight against fascism but also it acknowledges that a rebellion that's starting out will not be popular and the dirtbags and the crooks and the people with nowhere to go have to go die first before like the white bread farm boys from Tatooine join up. So it's, it's a really good show, Ben, man. Okay. Well, uh, I have several other things to catch up on many of which you'll talk about (laughs) in the, in the coming moments, but, um, it's definitely on my list of things to check out. All right. Uh, I'll I'll be fast on this one. Um, cause I know we cover it weekly and it's on special dedicated podcast, but she Hulk, I put off watching it, not because I didn't want to, but because something had to give TV-wise. I let the rest of the Slash team cover She-Hulk. And I decided to catch up because I love the She-Hulk comics. I think Dan Slott's She-Hulk comics from the early 2000s uh, made me a Marvel fan. I love this character. I love her world and her role in, in the Marvel comics. And know that people have been very mixed and very loudly mixed on this show. And damn it, I love She-Hulk. This show is so funny. It has barely any connection to the MCU. Uh, it And when it does, it's kind of taking the piss out of it. Uh, it's all sitcom stuff. It's all low stakes. It's all character driven. The fourth wall breaking stuff is hilarious. The finale, which goes super meta, uh, is really like a really sharp examination of the MCU in general. I mean, if you've seen the episode, you, you know who the surprise final villain is. It's quite a thing, and it made me very very happy. Uh, but it's I don't know I people are complaining a lot about this show. I think some of this from some of this from an honest place, and a lot of it isn't. But like, I like how low stakes it is. I like how funny it is. Uh, there's an episode where Daredevil shows up and they team up for her, her, him and She-Hulk team up. And it felt more like an actual Marvel comic than anything else in the MCU. Um, I mean, I, I like the MCU. You know, I'm, I'm on record as, a, as generally enjoying most of it. But 
there's a real actual Marvel Comics energy to She-Hulk. And I don't think that's always captured by the rest of the MCU. So yeah, She-Hulk, I'm a fan. Okay. Yeah, I saw the, I think the first episode before I had to leave for my trip and have not caught up on that, obviously. But um, yeah, it sounds like I, it sounds like it goes to some interesting places. So I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah, we'll talk. Okay. Uh, what else have you been catching up with? Real briefly, the last time I was on this podcast, I've seen the first episode of House of the Dragon. Uh, I, I I don't know if you've copied up, Ben. I think it's it's stuck. It's stuck. It's, it's remained as good. Um, some people have issues with the time jumps and the cast changing, but it is just the most addictive, compelling. Uh, I don't want to say train wreck because that implies the show's bad, but it's a show about a train wreck of a family mm-hmm. and watching the Targaryen family fall apart over these past eight episodes. There's still two left when I recorded this has been like some of my favorite pop culture moments of the year. And Patty Constantine as King Viserys, uh, just incredible. This episode eight, just, I'm not the kind of guy who like screams about Emmys. I, I think, you know, I'm, that's not my role, but I also do think like if there's any ever point where Patty Constantine was going to win an Emmy, it's going to be for episode eight of House of the Dragon. I'm, uh, Ben, I look, I look forward to you catching up so we can talk about some more. Yeah, definitely. I watched the first episode last night uh, with my wife, and we're definitely going to be, uh, I think, blasting through that as, as quickly as possible, hopefully to finish before the season ends so we don't get spoiled by any, any sort of like major reveals or anything. I don't know anything about what happens beyond the first episode, so I'm excited to, to catch up on that one. All right, I'll skip the next one because we'll, we'll talk about Lord of the Rings on, on, on your shift, but uh, so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll run through some movies real quick. Some movies, some movies are Fantastic Fest that I really enjoyed. They'll probably talk about more as we get closer to the release dates. Uh, Martin McDonough is the Banshees of Inishirin. Uh Ben, are you a Martin McDonough fan? Uh, I am, Bruges, yeah. yeah. Very Bruges, excited yeah. about this, yeah. Yeah, uh, this is my second favorite movie of the year so far, right behind Everything Everywhere All at Once. Mm. Um, if those of you don't know, it's um, it's Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson reuniting uh, after In Bruges, and they play uh, two best friends in a small village in 1920s Ireland, and one day Brendan Gleeson's character decides not to be friends anymore with Colin Farrell's character. And there's like no dark secret here, there's no big twist he just says, no, we're no longer friends. And it follows the destruction of their friendship and how it like ripples out and starts damaging people in their lives. It is really funny. Like if you see Marmot Donna's other, other plays or movies, you know how funny he is, but also how bleak he is. This is a dark movie. It's tragic. It is so dark that if it wasn't so funny, it would be unbearable to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I found it like, sneakily powerful and i found myself relating to colin farrell and brendan gleason's characters in ways that made me uncomfortable like they, they, those characters and those performances tap into something like deep into like my personal psyche to the point where like i felt like uncomfortable in the theater because of how much i felt myself watching those characters so <laughs> that comes out uh, later this month and uh like i said steal yourself it is not like an easy time the movies you know, easy is the wrong word it's very easy to watch because it's so funny, but it's also just incredibly tragic and heartbreaking. So uh, that's the uh, Banshees of Inisherin, which is all fantastic fest and can't recommend more highly. Awesome. Yeah, definitely like one of my most anticipated movies of the year. Uh, also, a decision to leave Fantastic Fest, a new Park Chan-wook movie, which as a rec- this recording opens tomorrow. Uh, this is really, really fun. I mean, Park Chan-wook is best known for Old Boy and for The Handmaiden and Thirst. And people have compared him to Alfred Hitchcock for years. People have always said, oh, he has a Hitchcock fetish. And that Hitchcock fetish comes full bloom here in Decision to Leave, which is an incredibly romantic thriller. Like the, uh, in the Vertigo rear window, um, North Northwest vein. I, I interviewed Park Chan-wook in an interview that will go up on, the, on, the, on Slashville.com this week. 
Uh, and I asked them directly, you know, did you did you intend to make like a throwback? Did you intend to make a movie that would have felt like it could have it sort of, could have starred Cary Grant in 1945? And he straight up said no. He said he he did not realize he was making that movie until the reviews started rolling in. But this is absolutely like if someone made Notorious today, it would be a decision to leave. <laughs> uh, it is it's a, it may be a South Korean thriller, but it's a South Korean thriller for adults, full of romance and dark humor, and just like lots of little twists and tiny details. It's just Park Chan Wook is a master, and the Hitchcock comparison maybe may, may seem reductive, but I mean it like in the most complimentary sense. He really has he's tapped into the same like energy I think that that's made Hitchcock movies you know still talked about you know eighty years later. So mm-hmm. this isn't to leave if, if you like South Korean thrillers or classic Hollywood, I can recommend this one quite highly. Man, okay, yeah, this is just shot to the <laughs> to the top of my list of things to see. So, decision to leave. It comes out uh, tomorrow. You said, uh, yeah, October fourteenth, um, and limited release, uh, and then uh, Mubi is putting it out for streaming, I believe. Oh, cool. Okay, uh, you also saw Werewolf by Night. Yeah, I was at the world premiere, the surprise world premiere of Marvel's Werewolf by Night at Fantastic Fest, and it's, it's streaming on Disney Plus now. So, about a lot of people have already seen it. This is uh, Michael Giacchino, the the Oscar-winning composer uh, behind uh, Up and Lost and Star Trek movies and other Marvel movies. His directorial de- debut, a 52-minute long Disney Plus streaming special, uh, which is essentially a uh, Marvel Halloween special. Uh, that takes the Werewolf by Night character, which is a werewolf by night, <laughs> and um, among other Marvel horror characters, and tells this contained 52-minute long, you know, shot in black and white Marvel story that just happens to be about monsters. And uh, Giacchino is clearly going for, you know, a classic, you know, William Castle, Universal Monsters, you know, hammer horror, a vibe for it. And I really enjoyed it. I think it works. Um, It's the kind of thing I hope Marvel does more often, which is, you know, 52 minutes, you know, an interesting filmmaker taking a big swing. And it won't work for everybody. I think some people are going to, you know, think maybe it's just, you know, not Marvel enough or still too much Marvel for their taste. But I think it walks a very fine line of scratching Marvel itch while being a really spooky, fun, like, monster mash. I like, guess it's, it's literally – Michael Giacchino clearly loves monsters. He clearly loves Marvel. He loves the chance to play in that, in that sandbox. And I think it's a really, really fun thing. At 52 minutes, you can't go wrong. Have yeah. you seen this yet, Ben? Yeah, Brad and I talked about it. Uh, we did a, a spoiler discussion uh, several days ago. And um, yeah, I think the more that I think about it, the more that I like it because it is that swing that you talked about. And, you know, there, there's so much talk about like Marvel sameness. And um, maybe there are some underlying, uh, I guess, structural kind of things that you could sort of um, use as a, as a cudgel uh, against this movie that where you could sort of apply that same uh, critique. But I think for the most part, this actually does feel like a wholly separate thing and uh, like somebody was let loose in the corner of the sandbox just to have some fun. So yeah, I, I fully agree that like more of this, please, in, instead of, you know, some of the other more mainstream Marvel stuff we've gotten recently. All right. I'll talk about one more thing I saw at Fantastic Fest. It doesn't come out till November, so I won't go long on it, but that's uh, The Menu, the new film by uh, Mark Mylod. He's best known for an H- he's, he's, he's directed a lot of HBO. He's, he's directed a lot of Succession. And it's, it's not his feature debut, but it's his... Uh, Definitely his biggest movie yet. And it stars uh, Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt as a couple who go to a private island that is home to a very exclusive restaurant uh, that's overseen by Ray Fiennes' character, who's this like master celebrity chef. Uh, and he who, th- who only throws these incredibly exclusive, extremely expensive dinners for wealthy clients. And things take a dark turn. Uh, we won the uh, Audience Award at Fantastic Fest. And it is... An extremely dark comedy. If you haven't seen the trailer yet, I'd recommend not watching the trailer. 
Uh, but Ray Fiennes is incredible in this movie, Ben. I've always liked Ray Fiennes. I've always thought he was just like the, like just one of our absolute best actors. Uh, but there's a, I'm making up a rule right now. I actually made up Fantastic Fest by putting it on the record on the air right now on this podcast. Calling it the John Wick rule, which is when somebody takes an actor and they write a role that's not only suited for them, but makes perfect use of all their strengths and none of their weaknesses, which is, which is what I think John Wick is for Keanu Reeves. It's a role that literally manages to sidestep everyone, everything that Keanu Reeves could do wrong is not present in John Wick. And everything he does well is accentuated to the, to like the ninth degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this is what the menu is for Ray Fiennes. <laughs> so uh, if you're a Ray Fiennes fan like I am, be prepared to prioritize this on day one. Amazing. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that one too, man. So much good stuff uh, in the, in the ether, you know, coming out very soon or, or out right now. Um, one thing that I thought was only okay that I saw recently is a movie called the redeem team, which is on Netflix right now. It's uh, about an hour and a half long. It's a documentary from uh, one of the producers of the last dance, which was that big Michael Jordan documentary, the basketball uh, documentary that came out. What was that last year, maybe 2020. Um, and the redeem team is a much more focused story. The, the last dance was like, you know, the sprawling thing about Michael Jordan's entire career and like, the, you know, larger uh, how the, the NBA has changed and all this, all this stuff, um, you know, sort of latched on to the, the hyper-focused story of uh, the Bulls going for multiple championships in a row. The Redeem team is, is much more focused, much smaller story. It's about the uh, 2008 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team who, um, you know, years before they had sort of like blown it on the, on the world stage. And basketball belonged to uh, the United States men's team in the Olympic realm for a long time, there were dominant and there was the dream team and all of that, like, you know, uh, Jordan and, and magic Johnson and Larry bird and all those, those guys, um, you know, just putting everybody to embarrassment on the national stage because they were so incredible. Uh, and that was back in 92. And then, you know, things sort of changed over time and some stuff faded out and players maybe became a little bit more, um, focused on themselves and their careers. And, uh, 9-11 happened and there there was a lot of uh, factors that went into the sort of um, dip of of how the U.S. men's basketball team performed. But then the stock traces that story, but also focuses on LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony and Kobe Bryant, uh, who's like a key factor in uh, coming together and, and playing as a uh, a team for a country instead of just a bunch of individual players from different NBA teams you know, coming together for like a couple weeks and like doing some drills and then going out and getting on the floor and playing together. This is more about like uh, creating a culture of what the U.S. men's basketball team, Olympic team actually means and like, you know, having the players buy into that. And it sort of goes into, you know, how they uh, came together as a team. And it's it's a, a nice like, um, you know, uh, inspiring sort of uh, feel good story, I guess. But it, it didn't really have the as much scope as I wanted. Um, but I think for people who don't really care that much about sports, didn't really pay attention to this at the time. Um, but like the idea of, uh, of story arcs embedded into sports, which is something you've talked about on this podcast before, Jacob, like I remember you talking about how much you loved the, uh, like F1 racing show because it was more about like the, the drama and the story and everything that I think you'll find a lot to like, um, with the Redeem team, which is on Netflix right now. Yeah, I have read, um, the book dream team by Jack McCollum, which is about, the uh, the first superstar men's Olympic 
uh, basketball team, and I, I loved it. It was one of the most exciting books I've ever read, even though I'm not necessarily a huge sports fan, so I'll have to check this out for sure. Another thing I caught up with recently is a stop-motion animated movie called Wendell and Wild, which is the new movie from director Henry Selleck. And uh, Jacob, I think you were on the set for that movie, were you not? Yeah, I visited the set of this in April. Uh, goodness, April of this year uh, in, in Portland, oh, as, they were, as they were wrapping up filming. Uh, I, there's a bunch of coverage about that on Slash Film, if you ever want to seek that out. Yeah, there's a ton of good stuff there already, and um, I really like this movie a lot. He, he directed Coraline in 2009, and I think that was his last feature film. Um, he's also the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas, which I've probably mentioned on this podcast that I don't really care for, and I think that's gotten me booed, almost booed off the mic before. Um, but I think this is probably his best movie or at least my favorite anyway um i love the uh so jordan peele and uh, keegan michael key play these uh demons who um <laughs> jacob how would you describe the plot to this this movie they're they're demons who like live in this sort of underground uh like undead realm and then they um they realize that there's a way that they can potentially come back to uh, the earth and they use this 13 year old girl uh, named cat as a sort of um, they, they attach onto her almost as like a uh, she, she becomes like their um, how would you, what, what sort of terminology would you use? What, what, what would she be to them? Um, I know the, the, the term used in the set was that she was their hell maiden. Okay. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> she, she like, uh, I guess resurrects them like unintentionally in order to, um, you know, she tries to make a deal with them so, so they can bring her parents back from the dead because she suffers this tragedy in the opening moments of the movie and, uh, has become hardened, uh, in life, you know, over the past like several years, she, she's going to this, um, like a uh, Catholic girls school and uh, she's been in and out of like foster care, it seems like, and she's become hardened to the ways of the world because she blames herself for the death of her parents. And then she stumbles across these like idiot demon brothers voiced by Key and Peele and uh, thinks that she has this opportunity to maybe bring her parents back and sort of like right the wrongs that she uh, feels that she's committed in life. And it's, um, it's a really interesting movie. It looks great. The stop motion stuff is, is incredible. Um, and, you know, it, it's not like super heavy on like the gross out stuff, which some of Henry Selleck's projects can be. Uh, there is a little bit of that in here, but it's not like um, overtly trying to uh, to to gross you out at, at every turn, um, which I appreciated. And then, yeah, I just felt like there was there was real emotion, real heart. And it just felt like a real story was being told here instead of just um, sometimes with stop motion stuff, it just feels like. Uh, you know, the stop motion features maybe could have been a short story or something because like they had a cool aesthetic, but the the story just isn't always quite there. And I, I really felt like the story in Wendell and Wild is is there. So um, Jacob, have you actually seen the full movie yet? Because of Fantastic Fest and COVID, I have not. Uh, I've been catching up on my TV instead. But um, since I was, I suppose things were really bad because some, this is not the first time I've been on a major set visit and then put off seeing the movie for whatever damn reason. Um, but yes, I, I need to catch up on this because I really liked what I saw on that set. And they showed us footage, but it was, it was far from finished. I mean, the footage we saw, uh, even, even though, you know, stop motion is all in camera, there'd be certain things like, you know, uh, C-stands or wires that are used to help, you know, hold certain elements in place in stop motion mm-hmm. had to be digitally removed. So the, the footage we saw hadn't, hadn't had any digital work, uh, hadn't had any digital touch-ups yet. So looking forward to seeing it, like all the footage, like actually magically polished. So it's the yeah. stuff we saw was really cool. And 
I, I, I liked how even in the footage before digital touch-ups and on the set, Henry Selleck just emphasized that uh, he he loved imperfections. He loved stop motion because he, you can see artists' hands at work and that it never looks perfect. And that's what he loved about it. And would you say that that applies to the visual style of the finished version, Ben? Yeah, definitely. And and in a great way too, because it's not like um, overtly messy. It, it all feels really fluid and, and really cool. But like any sort of imperfections just feels like, um, you know, it, it enhances the world that these characters are living in. So, uh, yeah, this movie comes out on Netflix on October 28th. So definitely put it on your radar. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it is more of like a, a family movie, I guess you could, you could say. Um, but yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Um, one thing I didn't particularly care for Jacob is, uh, I was a little bummed about the sound of 007, which is a, a documentary that's on uh, Amazon prime video. It was directed by Matt Whitecross and a movie called the sound of 007 has a lot of potential because I thought it was going to be about the way that sound and sound mixing and sound effects were are used throughout the James Bond franchise. But really it's just about how the theme music and the, the soundtracks and, and scores um, are used in, and, and it's mostly about the theme songs. That's really where the, the big focus lies, um, which is interesting in and of itself, but, but it's not quite, uh, I feel like the, the movie is improperly titled with the sound of 007, but uh, you know, th- there's some cool stories and stuff in here. There's a great Michael Caine story that we've actually written about on slash film. Um, That's a very good story. And, and you know, th- there's some, you know, like some amusing uh, bits. There's a part where um, somebody makes fun of, uh, oh gosh, what is his name? Uh, the guy who played the villain in the most recent Bond movie in No Time to Die, uh, Rami Malek. Somebody makes fun of him because he's interviewed uh, in this movie and he suggests that Queen could have uh, performed uh, a, a Bond theme song and then it cu- immediately cuts to, uh, I think it's Reggie Watts or some comedian being like, uh, Rami Malek is contractually obligated to <laughs> to like mention Queen because he's just like obnoxious about, uh, you know, his his involvement with Bohemian Rhapsody and, and all of that. So anyway, uh, it, it plays much better in context than I, I just butchered the joke there. But um, yeah, the movie is, is fine. It's okay. It's, you know, for like diehard Bond completists, you'll probably know a lot of these stories already. You'll po- probably have your own thoughts that are being articulated in this thing. The, the one good thing about it is that it goes relatively deep into the career of John Barry, who really sort of like helped pioneer the overall sound of what Bond music can be. So I didn't really know much about him as a person or as an artist beyond, oh, hey, he's the Bond guy. Um, and this uh, documentary did a little bit more to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit on him. So uh, it's streaming on Prime Video right now. If you are a big Bond fan and want to check it out, uh, just maybe like set your expectations pretty low and you'll probably have a decent time with it. So it's just called The Sound of 007. Uh, and then, okay, Jacob, the last thing, and I know we got to go soon, so we can keep this relatively short, but uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Um, uh, shortness and Tolkien, we can't put that in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> uh, so I, when I came back, from Italy, this was the first show that that we dove into that I knew that I, I wanted to watch and, and catch up on. Uh, thankfully, I am all caught up just in time for the uh, season finale, which is coming out, what, tomorrow, I think? So, yeah, tomorrow. Uh, and they've already started filming season two, so get ready. Man, uh, I really like this show a lot. Um, I it really fi- I'm sure people have said this before, but it really does feel like dipping back into the Peter Jackson world, um, you know, I have not read all of Tolkien. I've read The Hobbit uh, several times. Um, I tried to read 
uh, fellowship as a kid and just couldn't get past Tom Bombadil. <laughs> and I need to, to go back and actually dive into reading all that. But um, those movies, uh, the, the original trilogy is something that I revisit, you know, annually. And um, I just love very deeply. And this show does a lot of that sort of um, it's, it's the most artful, I think. Uh, and, and the most, um, the most non-obnoxious way of uh, of doing those sort of winks and nods that we were referring to earlier, where if you know those Jackson movies really well, or if you know Tolkien's work really well, you'll definitely pick up on like, oh, the framing of the shot is very similar to this shot from Fellowship of the Ring, or you know, this line is definitely an allusion to this line that this character says in the second movie or whatever. Um, but it, it's never like, it never stops to make sure that you get it. It just, it works in the context of its own story that it's telling, which I really, really appreciate. And I never feel like the people behind the scenes are uh, desperate for my approval in the way that so many, you know, Marvel stuff, some Marvel shows and then things like that are where I sort of like, you know, where they're like Ghostbusters Afterlife has more Easter eggs than any movie ever. And it just like makes me want to hurl. Um, so this is is like the polar opposite from that in my view anyway. Um, and yeah, it's just like really cool to see these characters, uh, some of which we know, some of which we don't, um, going off on their own adventures and, and you know, seeing how it sort of mirrors some of the story that we're familiar with before. Uh, what do you think about it, Jacob? I love this show. I think it's beautiful. It's, it, like, if people, or somebody had lines, including um, from Slash, and like, talk about like a billion dollars or a billion dollars to make a Lord of the Rings TV show and like yada, yada, yada. But this show looks stunning. I mean, I, as much as I love House of the Dragon, it, it's, it's kind of muddy looking. It's kind of, it's a show that's been shot in a lot of grays. It, it, it's only, it only has a, it's most set around, you know, the same King's Landing sets. It's expensive for sure. I mean, it's massively expensive, but it still looks like an HBO show, whereas, I think that um, Rings of Power actively looks like a movie. Like, it's thing could be screened in, in theaters, I think, and, and look yeah. amazing. There is uh, something just really beautiful about it. And, I mean, there, I, and, the, and the cast is so sprawling. I, I, I love The Stranger and The Harfoots. I love that storyline. <laughs> I love um, I, I love Dern and Elrond. I love, I love how... So much of the, the joy of the Peter Jackson movies was watching these friendships and relationships develop over these epic journeys, and the show has doubled down on that. I mean, I think it, it walks a fine line where, like you said, it, it feels like it could exist in the same world as the Jackson movies, but it legally can't, so they kind of have to, you know, hedge their own bets. So you can kind of approach it however you want, either is you know, attached to Jackson stuff or not. But it captures that vibe, which is just, you know, what it means to go on a journey. Every every character on this on this show is on a journey, and you, you get the sense of the passage of time and distance and character. Uh, I don't know. I, I keep on seeing this common com- complaint from nerds and the internet about how nothing happens in Rings of Power. And I made my jaw drop because this show is so full of character and adventure and, and just ideas and beautiful moments that I, I, I just feel out of touch with the young people, I guess. Huh? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I guess I can see, you know, if you were to describe like the broad strokes of the season, it seems like there's a lot that's set up that hasn't been paid off yet. Like the idea of um, of Elrond sort of being tasked with, um, I guess, almost like serving as an apprentice to, I think his name is Celebrimbor, who's like the the um, architect of the rings. Like we haven't seen the actual rings yet. So maybe that is playing into these people's complaint of like, 
maybe this is a fruitless uh, exercise to even like try to diagnose a, a complaint that I don't fully understand. But but I, I, the broad point is I, I can sort of see what they're saying where like, you know, this is not like an action packed, um, super high paced kind of show. It's, it's much more, um, you know, easing you back into that world. And I really like the balance of the storytelling, all the, all the different storylines. Um, I, I just think they're, they're being spooled out in a way that, uh, that really, um, it pleases me. It makes sense. It, I never feel like I'm spending too long with one particular story and want to get back to another one. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's about as good as, as I could have expected for, a show like this for its first season. I'm, I'm curious to see what they do and how far they go in the finale of like, are you going to try, how much are you going to try to wrap up? How much are you going to try to just like leave as a, a dangling thread to pick up in a second season or something? But, um, you know, it has had its fair share of like horrifying moments and, and the, the, uh, I think it was the most recent episode or, or maybe the one right before that. It was like a big, uh, battle episode. I mean, there's a lot going on in the show, but it's, it's, I guess if you, if you're like, I want the rings in my show, <laughs> then maybe you're going to be a little disappointed in season one. But, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just rewatched all three of Lord of the Rings movies in their extended editions, and I don't. Those movies are, are I mean, they have action in them, but they're so full. People always make fun of like, oh, everybody's walking all the time. Thanks, Kevin Smith. That that joke didn't get old fast. <laughs> um, yeah, they are walking because those movies and stories are about journeys. And they're about. And about like what a journey does to somebody, both physically and mentally and emotionally. And yeah. I, I like that. Rings of Power feels like a journey. And it feels like a journey in this. Uh, I, I hate directly comparing them, but House of the Dragon is that such a sprint? It's a show that by its very nature is just fast, 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 fast. It's why it's addictive. But I like that Rings of Power is like, hey, take your time, go through a stroll in the woods. So Tolkien would have wanted it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a good place to end, I think. Um, okay, so you can find more about a lot of the stuff that we talked about. Uh, on today's show at SlashFilm.com. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.